0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: It's Sunday, October 28th. I'm John Dickerson, and this is Face the Nation. Hatred and horror at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh as a gunman goes on an anti-Semitic shooting rampage, killing 11 worshipers and injuring six more in what the Anti-Defamation League believes— to be the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in America's history. This
2: wicked act of mass murder is pure evil, hard to believe, and frankly, something that is unimaginable. We must all rise above the hate, move past our divisions and embrace our common destiny as Americans.
1: But at the end of a week where at least 14 pipe bombs were sent to critics of President Trump, the country is on edge, and Americans are looking for answers and a way to curb the anger and divisions that exist today. We'll talk with two senators working together on that issue for a while, Oklahoma Republican James Lankford and Delaware Democrat Chris Coons, who head up a prayer group in the Senate. We spent time on the campaign trail earlier this month with House Speaker Paul Ryan and Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. You'll hear from them about anger in politics. And with nine days left until the midterm elections, we'll get an update on three toss-up races in the Senate, Arizona, Florida, and Indiana. Plus, we'll have analysis on all the news. That's all coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. It's been a grim week in America as hate has led to fear and deadly violence in two separate but horrifying cases. A law enforcement source tells CBS News that Cesar Sayoc, the man accused of sending at least 14 mail bombs to prominent critics of President Trump, told law enforcement when he was arrested that he didn't intend to hurt anyone. And that's why they believe the bombs were not connected to go off. He will be arraigned on Monday in federal court in Florida. In Pittsburgh, officials Um, have just concluded a briefing on the case against Robert Bowers, who they say killed 11 and wounded six, including four police officers, at a Jewish temple yesterday. We begin today with CBS News correspondent Nikki Batiste, who is outside the Tree of Life synagogue and filed this report.
3: Authorities just revealed the names of the 11 victims, ranging in age from 97 to 54. Among them is Daniel Stein. He was 71 years old and had reportedly just become a new grandfather. It's just been 24 hours since Robert Bauer stormed into this synagogue and said to one responding law enforcement officer, I just want to kill Jews. Armed with three handguns and an assault rifle, authorities say Pittsburgh area resident Robert Bowers opened fire on worshippers Saturday morning, murdering 11 people inside this synagogue. Responding officers reached the scene as he was fleeing and exchanged gunfire with the 46-year-old. 3410, please send the medics up here. Officers shot Bowers multiple times before he was arrested and taken to a local hospital. He reportedly shouted anti-Semitic slurs as he was shooting inside the synagogue and had recently written on his page on the social media platform Gab that Jews are the children of Satan. Investigators said Bowers' rampage was aimed at Jews specifically.
4: This is the most horrific crime scene I've seen in 22 years with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Members of the Tree of Life Synagogue conducting a peaceful service in their place of worship were brutally murdered by a gunman targeting them
5: simply because of their faith.
3: Just hours later, this resilient community mourned the lives lost and prayed for six others injured, including four police officers. Herky and Lisa Pollock were part of the Pittsburgh Jewish community.
6: When you hear names and you hear faces and a, a, a bit of us all died today, and 11 of our friends and family all died today. And unfortunately, we're going
7: to have to live with that, the ramifications after the rest of our lives.
3: Bowers is still in the hospital, but is expected to make his first court appearance tomorrow afternoon. He's charged with 29 federal crimes, including violence and firearms offenses. The Department of Justice says the charges could lead to the death penalty. John
1: We turn now to Republican Senator James Langford of Oklahoma. He is a member of the Intelligence and Homeland Security Committees, and he joins us this morning from Oklahoma City. Good morning, Senator.
8: Good morning to you.
1: This horrible shooting in Pittsburgh seems to be part of a trend. The acts of anti-Semitic violence in the United States have increased 57 percent since between 2016 and 2017. That's the largest increase ever. Why do you think that is?
8: Yeah, it's very difficult to be able to tell, obviously, why any person this deranged would uh, step out and do that or any other person uh, reaching out to be able to uh, press back against people because of their faith. Uh, So I think we continue to be able to ask those questions that you're asking right now. Uh, We continue to be able to have dialogue and to be able to push back on anyone uh, who tries to reach out for anyone of uh, person of faith or race or whatever it might be.
1: One of the things that the shooter in this horrible shooting apparently said or was guided by was this idea that this caravan coming from Central America, was being supported by globalists. Some people say George Soros' his name. President Trump has made that same case. Do you see any connection between the shooter motivated by that and the case the president has been making?
8: I don't, because this particular shooter also condemned President Trump, saying he was a globalist and that he was allowing some of this to happen. So I, I don't see any connection where you would connect the president uh, to this particular shooting, just like I wouldn't see that connecting Democrats when a person walked up to a baseball game last year in Washington, D.C. and said, is this the re- where the Republicans are practicing? And then opened fired on them simply because they were Republicans. So th- th- this issue about uh, a shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina or shooting in a synagogue or shooting at a Republican baseball practice, uh, this is just hate-filled individuals that are very deranged.
1: I think the distinction that uh let's be frank, the distinction critics of the president have been making is that he has been making this specific narrative claim that there are Middle Easterners in this caravan with no evidence that that exists and that that was the direct link to the shooter. So it's not just unfocused criticism, uh, but very, a very specific narrative that this shooter seems to have picked up on.
8: Again, we're back to the same issue, I, I believe also this same shooter was condemning President Trump uh, for being a globalist at the time. So I, I don't see where President Trump is somehow to blame for this. Now, Pre- President Trump and his rhetoric is very direct, uh, but I don't see how you connect President Trump uh, to a person who's deranged going into a synagogue. He's been very clear about anti-Semitism uh, as well as all of us have been. Uh, that is a, a sick, vile thing.
1: Let me ask you, Senator, about the larger issue of of domestic terrorism. We had a number of incidents this week. You have this shooting. You have the attempted bombing. You have uh, the shooting of two African-Americans in uh, in Kentucky. Uh, You're a member of the Homeland Security Committee. Give me your sense of the threat from domestic terrorism.
8: This is always one of the most difficult threats that we have, actually. Uh, International terrorism, we're very aggressive on. Uh, We've uh, not had a major uh, terrorist event from international terrorism in a very long time now. We'll continue to be able to be vigilant in that work. Uh, But the most difficult thing is we as Americans uh, have the basic right of protection of privacy, and we should have that right of protection of privacy. Uh, but that also means it's very difficult for law enforcement. If someone does what is called, goes from flash to bang very, very quickly. Uh, this individual uh, yesterday apparently posted something after saying all these horrible things on uh, about Jews uh, for a long time, posted something saying... Uh, that uh, I'm going to go in and then suddenly took off. No one It wasn't on anyone's radar, wasn't being tracked by anyone. Uh, this is a person that might have been paranoid that the government was watching, but the government's not watching uh, people, that people live their normal lives. And if he do- doesn't have a criminal record and is not on anyone's radar, very difficult to be able to track someone within the United States that snaps and takes off and does something like this.
1: In, in the response to uh, what the administration thought was a threat from immigrants, they started checking the social media histories of people coming into the United States States with Americans and this domestic terror threat. In this case, you had online postings of the shooter. Then in the case of the Florida man, he was uh, obviously on social media uh, saying some uh, things that were very consistent with his actions. There's nothing that can be done in social media to keep track of these domestic terrorists.
8: No, we're not trying to track each other, uh, but there are, are things that if someone shows up on a radar that law enforcement can go get a warrant, can go through the process to be able to examine. Obviously, if people have their social media uh, post public, uh, that can also be monitored to see if someone is trying to be able to uh, foment violence in any sort. Uh, So there are ways to be able to monitor that without trying to violate someone's uh, basic constitutional freedoms uh, if they're posting things in open source.
1: In response to the mail bombings this week, you said we we have to work. We have to all work together as Americans to stop this. What actual specific work are you talking about?
8: Yeah, that is the difficult thing that is not a legislative task, that everyone says, let's have a vote and let's solve all these issues. Uh, If I go back to what Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said years ago, uh, his statement was, you don't overcome hate with more hate. Uh, You don't try to drive out darkness with more darkness. Uh, Only love can do that. And as a culture, we've got to figure out how to be able to communicate with each other on difficult things. Now, again, this person sending out package bombs to people is a very deranged individual in all likelihood. From everything that we've seen back from him and more information will continue to be able to come out. Uh, But the challenge that we have is our social media rhetoric, uh, our intensity of our dialogue is no longer about having dialogue and conversation. It's shouting someone else down that you disagree with and trying to silence them rather than having dialogue with them.
1: In your view, Senator, the president of the United States has a bigger voice than anybody else in politics or in the world, really. Does the president, as it stands right now, meet that standard that you're talking about for public discourse?
8: No, I've said this to the president before. I think that the president needs to be more clear in his rhetoric and doesn't need to be as caustic in his rhetoric. That's the way he chooses to be able to communicate things. And I don't think it's always helpful in that. Uh, We have the same issue on university campuses all around the country where individuals can't speak out on their views because they'll get shouted down. We had that around the Kavanaugh hearings where you'd walk through the Capitol and people would shout at you trying to be able to silence individuals. That doesn't help in our basic dialogue. And I think the president should, and I think all of us that are in Congress uh, and anyone in public life should set a good role model example of what it means to have respectful dialogue.
5: All
1: right, Senator, we're out of time. We thank you very much for being with us.
8: Thank you. We turn now to Delaware
1: Democratic Senator Chris Coons. He joins us this morning from Wilmington. Good morning, Senator. Good morning, John. Great to be on with you again. I'll start with you where I started with Senator Langford. In the United States, anti-Semitic violence increased 57 percent between 2016 and 2017. Why do you think that is?
9: Well, I think that's because of the caustic tone of our national politics. Uh, I am concerned uh, that this hateful, deranged act by a man um, acting on his anti-Semitic hatred Um, is just the latest in a series of violent incidents this past week um, that shows that our national political culture um, is motivating folks uh, who are uh, inspired by um, hate, by fear, by bigotry um, to take up and and act on their deranged ideas. Um, I think there's a responsibility for all
1: of us uh, to lower the tone uh, of hatred and division in our country. Is that the way you see it? All lawmakers, all people in public life share the responsibility equally, or are there portions of the culture that uh, have more work to do than others? Uh,
9: Well, I think those of us uh, in national office, uh, our president, those who would hope to be president, those of us in Congress uh, who have louder uh, microphones and who are heard from and seen more regularly, uh, need to take responsibility uh, for ways in which we lower the temperature. Uh, Senator Langford and I are the co-chairs of the weekly Senate Prayer Breakfast. Um, we get together every week with a bipartisan group of several dozen senators, um, and one of the things we focus on is trying to uh, meet each other in a spirit of humility and prayer uh, and to see each other as real people, not as uh, evil enemies, not as uh, more than just political opponents. Uh, and one of the things that really concerns me that weighs on my heart, John, is the ways in which um, our president uh, and a number of other national political leaders of both parties um, have used their megaphones in order to um, inspire and instill and um, energize uh, folks uh, based on division rather than based on unity.
1: But are you making any claim about that inspiration in the acts we've seen this week? From the president. Well, look, these
9: particular these particular attacks were by deranged and hateful individuals. And um, it's hard to draw a clear line between um, specific arguments the president or others have made um, and attacks. Uh, Look, when Senator Sanders um, heard that one of his supporters had taken up a rifle and shot Congressman Scalise and uh, tried to kill other Republican members of Congress, he took to the floor of the Senate and denounced it. Um, What I do think is helpful Uh, is when those who are in national leadership um, recognize that some of the arguments they've been making have inspired or encouraged uh, deranged individuals to take actions that they really don't support to make it perfectly clear, to denounce hatred and anti-Semitism, as President Trump recently has, uh, to distance themselves from the arguments that might have inspired these sorts of arguments uh, – excuse me, these sorts of actions. Um, it is important for us to recognize that um, there's more work that we can and should do to lower the temperature and
1: tone in our national politics. And what about, you've mentioned the president in terms of contributing to this tone. Uh, Obviously, members of the president's party point to the protesters who shouted down Republican senators during the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, Mitch McConnell was confronted in a restaurant. Speak to the actions uh, on the Democratic side and what role you think they've contributed in this tone that you've been talking about.
9: Look, when uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters encouraged folks, um, supporters, protesters, advocates in my party Uh, to continue this practice of harassing, uh, um, of confronting uh, folks from the other party. I spoke out against that. Uh, Many in my party did. Um, I think it's important that um, people in leadership nationally who are well-known discourage that kind of aggressive advocacy. Uh, But, John, there is a real difference between um, folks in the Capitol who during the Kavanaugh hearings uh, were spirited, were loud, uh, and participated in uh, their constitutionally protected right of free speech Uh, and the gentleman who uh, sent out uh, 14 mail bombs this last week, the individual who exercised uh, a hateful instinct there against um, political and media figures across the country. Uh, John, we narrowly avoided uh, a remarkable, um, tragic week in American history. If those bombs had gone off, uh, we would today be having a very different conversation about not uh, assassination attempts against two former presidents, uh, but what would have been a tragic wave of violence, Um, almost unprecedented in modern history. Um, We have to take a moment and step back and recognize that the heated rhetoric of American politics today is encouraging some folks um, who are deranged to
1: take action based on that rhetoric. Finally, Senator, one very quick question. You're on the Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, What's your feeling about the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and whether he knew about the assassination of uh, Jamal Khashoggi?
7: Uh,
9: Well, we don't yet know the full facts, uh, but 20 of us, Republicans and Democrats in equal number, wrote President Trump, uh, triggered the Global Magnitsky Act, uh, and he must now begin an investigation and get back to us. Uh, about whether or not we should be imposing sanctions. Uh, If the crown prince was directly involved in planning and carrying out this horrific, premeditated murder of a journalist, an American resident who wrote for an American paper, uh, there should be significant consequences. We should reconsider our relationship with Saudi Arabia, because it needs to be a relationship based not just on shared interests in arms sales or in regional security, but shared values. And this is an incident that goes right to the heart of one of our core values, the protection of free speech and of journalists and the media.
1: All right. We've come to the end of our time, Senator. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, John. And we'll be back in a minute with a lot more. Face the nation. Don't go away.
2: Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices. It can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much, and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to a Sleep Number store, because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping, so you can know every morning how well you've slept, and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven, quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep
1: Number. The current state of our politics is a topic that has become much more acute in this past week. But anger has been a theme on the campaign trail for quite some time. Earlier this month, we spent time in Saratoga Springs, New York, with House Speaker Paul Ryan and the congresswoman who represents that district, Elise Stefanik, as she campaigned for reelection. Our conversation about budgets and taxes ran on CBS this morning, but we also talked about the increasing polarization among politicians, we started with Ryan's claim that news organizations don't cover Congress's bipartisan achievements. Why do you think there's not much talk about bipartisanship in the,
5: in the coverage? Know, I don't think it sells for you guys, for the media. Uh, you take a look at the bills we pass out of the House, about 1,000 bills. It's been one of the most productive sessions of Congress in a generation. And of those roughly 1,000 bills, uh, over 80% of them are bipartisan bills. So we've tackled opioids, we've tackled human trafficking, we've rebuilt the military. All of those are bipartisan, but they don't get reported. It, it doesn't sell. So I honestly think, John, it's the hits and the clicks and it's the ratings chase that's on display in America today that says when they're fighting each other, that's when you cover it.
1: So if, if uh, we accept some portion of responsibility for that, you've seen some Trump, uh, President Trump's rallies. Do those rallies accentuate the things that unite us, the bipartisan achievements, or are they... Uh, do they do something very successful in politics, is get wildly successful, yeah.
5: which is so division in the country. Yeah.
1: Do you see that happening at his rallies? Sometimes, yeah. Uh,
5: sometimes meaning? Well, not always, but sometimes. I worry about tribal identity politics becoming the new norm of how politics is waged. As conservatives, we always thought this was sort of a left-wing Linsky thing. Unfortunately, the right practices identity politics now as well. It's the day and age, it's technology and everything else. Identity politics, which is now being practiced on both sides of the aisle, is unfortunately working. And I think we, as leaders, we got to figure out how do we make inclusive, aspirational politics strategically valuable again. You've talked about inclusive politics, which tries
1: to unify. Does President Trump practice those kind of politics? Uh, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't. How? But I mean, come on, honestly. I no, mean, I mean, very...
5: look, look on economic growth and, and tax reform, on getting the military and helping veterans. Uh, Those are things that he has led us to that have really brought people together. And he talks about these at Israeli, and that is inclusive. You talk about tribalism. Here's the thing. You leave office
1: and you say to members like the Congresswoman who are still in office, we've got to get we've got to deal with this tribalism. Isn't the most effective way to deal with tribalism is to say to your own team. It's while not you're? Do it. Yeah. yeah. And, and President Trump has been very effective practicing the politics as they are, not as like some, you know, grad school idea of how they should be. But he's gotten two supreme court nominees confirmed he got the tax cut bill through so tribalism is working out just fine if it's getting things if getting get oh,
5: point points on the board look take, take the tax bill for example what is that going to do that's going to create economic growth and opportunity it's creating more investment this this company right here 30 more jobs and higher wages more investment in their factory to hire even more people so what does that do that helps reduce economic anxiety So to me, the best way to combat tribalism is to starve it of its oxygen, which is anxiety, economic anxiety, security anxiety. And if we can pass policies that help improve people's lives, make them more confident about the future then they'll be less prone uh, to be to be swayed by the kind of tribalism identity politics we see these
1: days. But isn't another way, and perhaps a more effective way, is not to give in to tribalism when it's Absolutely. convenient in order to get something yes. passed. Yes, yes,
5: that is well. How but what th- can we do? We can control, she can control what she says, I can control what I say. She and I don't tweet these things. Uh, we say what we say, but also we pass policies that we believe are going to be good for this country and are going to address people's concerns and fears and make them more... Uh, secure in their lives. Do you think what is more attractive to people who are running is the kind of inclusive,
1: um, uh, kind of old-style Republican vision that the speaker here is talking about, or the grittier, tougher, highly successful kind of politics that's transformed the Republican Party that, that President Trump practices?
10: I think this election is going to be focused on results versus resistance. Mm. What I know does not resonate with voters is this resistance uh, effort where regardless of whether you agree with some of the focus of this administration, you're unwilling to work with them. So I think both parties need to address the tribalism that's happening and the siloing of where we're getting our information is a part of that.
1: Have you seen efforts to reach out from the president? To the other party?
10: Um, I, I think he has reached out. Yeah. Look at what he's done on opioids. Uh, this is an initiative from this administration.
1: But he's also called them evil. How
5: do you reach you know, out they and call, call him, them evil? I mean, so, but, but look.
1: Well, but isn't that so right? That gets the, us the into the, the, the cycle. The
5: but, but, but just so you know, all these bills, this has been an incredibly productive tournament of legislation. The president has signed so many new, big, bold reforms into law, most of which are bipartisan. Again, that interview was taped on
1: October 16th. We also spoke with Speaker Ryan about his plans after he leaves Congress in January. But with breaking news this weekend, we've had to put that on our website at facethenation.com. We'll be right back with more Face the Nation in a moment.
11: I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, noo mcom slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. With control of Congress up for grabs next Tuesday, we want to take a look at where things stand in some key Senate races. Here with us is CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto, and he has some new battleground tracker numbers on hand. Anthony, welcome. Remind us again, update us on exactly what's at stake in the Senate, and then tell us what you found in these new numbers.
10: Right. Well, the Republicans have a two seat majority in the Senate that they're trying to hold on to, and they have what we call a favorable map, which means that of the states where Senate races are up this year, the Democrats are defending more, and many of them are defending seats. In states that Donald Trump won last time around, so we call them red states, they're Republican-leaning, that makes it rather hard for them. Let me start with a couple of states that I think will tell the story, at least early on, on election night, when we watch it next week. The first is Florida, and that race we have tied between Rick Scott and the incumbent Democrat, Bill Nelson. You know, Scott seems to get a boost from his handling of the recent hurricane there. That may be helping him out. Then we go to Indiana, where we've got the Republican up three points. That's a slight lead over the incumbent Democrat, Joe Donnelly. That's a seat that the Republicans would love to try to pick up. And if they can it really helps their chances. And then out to Arizona. That's an open seat. It's another state that Donald Trump won where we have Chris Cinema up 3 points over Martha McSally. That's a quick view
1: of the landscape in three key races. So let's per, Florida, purple state. We always watch Florida. So that mm-hmm. and that's you know split and so that kind of follows what we know on Indiana, Arizona. Tell me what's the difference between the Democrats being ahead in Arizona which has had two Republican senators. Whereas Indiana, you've got an incumbent Democrat, but he's behind. Is there a difference between those two states?
10: Yeah. Um, one is just a little bit of crossover voting, where Cinema is getting just a little bit more of that Republican crossover vote than Joe Donnelly is. Now, this is important because we see so very little of that these days. And, in fact, in all of these states, we see much less of it than we did the last time Democrats won in these red states. That partly tells you what a partisan environment this is. It tells you that this election is nationalized, that three in four voters are saying that they're casting a vote for Senate or Congress this year to put their favored national party in control of Congress. Having said all that, cinema is doing a little bit better on health care, which is something certainly the Democrats want this election to be about. Donnelly is not benefiting from what some folks thought would be a backlash against the president's trade policy in a heavily agricultural state. Republicans in particular and voters overall tend to think that those trade policies will eventually pan out and help them in the long run.
1: Let's talk about that nationalized election, because Donald Trump, when you see him on the campaign trail, thinks that this is going to be an election about values. And he's returned to a lot of the themes from 2016. Immigration, safety, even talking about socialism. Uh, Democrats, on the other hand, have a different bet that they're making. As you said, in Arizona, the Democrat running uh, is talking about health care.
10: Who's right? Well, look, it depends on whoever wins is probably going to end up, end up being the one that, uh, that we think is right. But look, the, the Democrats want this to be about health care because people do see them as being better off at handling Medicare. And also, they don't necessarily buy the idea, the Republicans, that they'll protect pre-existing conditions in particular. Um, the Republicans aren't polling well on, on doing that. The Democrats are polling better on that. And that's something that people want. So it's no accident the Democrats are running on that. As far as larger values is concerned, you know, I think that you've got a situation where in this, in this very nationalized election, um, the president becomes a, a large factor. And we see a big split between people who say the economy is good but don't like the direction of the country. And in a lot of these states, the percent of people who say that the president is going to be a factor in their vote is far higher than we've seen in recent midterms. And that could, be, that could be an enormous factor there as part of nationalizing all of this.
1: We talk about tribalism, which has become a kind of a jargon word. How do you see it in the, in the polls playing out in terms of what's different than what we've seen in the past? Yeah.
10: After a week like this, so much talk about anger, so much talk, as you say, about tribalism. It's something we pollsters try to wrestle with and try to capture. One way we do it is we've asked people, well, the other side, are they people who disagree with you about policy? Or are they fundamentally different kinds of people? And we're seeing a majority of partisans here saying the second of those, that they think they're fundamentally different kinds of people. That's hard to negotiate. It becomes personal. It's hard to adjudicate that. You know, the other thing is we look at the groups that people feel like are represented by the parties. We see the Republicans saying the Democrats care more about the interests of immigrants than longer-term citizens. We see the Democrats saying they think the Republicans care more about the wealthy than working people, it comes down to those group politics, and again, it becomes a very personal cast
1: to the whole election. And just very—it's not just different kinds of people, but bad people, right? They have a, a very negative personal feeling about people in the other party. It's what we often call negative
10: partisanship. It's not just the idea that your party is right, and maybe it even isn't, but you sure do
1: think the other side is wrong. All right, Anthony Sando, thanks so much, and we'll be right back with our panel. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe
0: when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look,
1: And now it's time for some political analysis. Lonnie Chen is a policy expert and fellow at the Hoover Institution. Jeffrey Goldberg is the editor in chief of The Atlantic. Susan Page is Washington Bureau Chief at USA Today. And Jamel Bowie is the chief political correspondent at Slate and a CBS News political analyst. Jeffrey, I want to start with you. The president said this shooting in Pittsburgh was unimaginable. It was unimaginable that this could happen. Does it seem that way to you, unimaginable?
7: No, it's very imaginable. I don't think there's a a Jewish person in America or anywhere else who thinks that this sort of thing is unimaginable. There's a long, long history of this sort of thing. These things are not only imaginable, but they're predictable to a certain degree. And, and let, me, let me state very, very clearly, um, these sorts of incidents predate the rise of Donald Trump and, and the tribalism that we see now. Uh, obviously, there were, there were fatal shootings at Jewish community centers uh, in the last 20 years. There was, of course, a shooting at the Holocaust Museum before the Trump era. But it's important to note uh, that, that some of the language that Donald Trump consciously uses, some of the language that his supporters use, tends to activate people who have very, very dark thoughts and feelings about Jews. And among that group that's activated, some clearly uh, are willing to carry out violence. That's not to say that Donald Trump is responsible for the shooting. The shooter is responsible for this shooting. But we live in a climate right now in which the president himself... Abets or creates a climate in which this this sort of incident, this sort of tragedy, becomes more imaginable.
6: Yeah, to, to add to that, I, a lot of the conversation around the past week has been about tribalism. And it's been about sort of our, our language towards each other. But from my view, this looks to be much more conversation about exactly this: the transmission of idea of anti-Semitic ideas, the transition, the transmission of. Uh, anti black racism into the public sphere in a way that has just not been the case in a long time. Um, you mentioned uh, earlier in the show the shooting in Kentucky of two African Americans the shooter attempted to break into a church and kill many more people and I think that is of a piece with what happened with pittsburgh that 's of, of a piece with the attempted bombings that beyond above and beyond heated rhetoric. Um, there is a, a rhetoric of racial threat, a rhetoric of, uh, you know, anti-Semitic, uh, uh, language that is coming into our politics. And by definition, it's going to create conditions for violence. People are going to act on
7: it. Dylan Roof in South Carolina could have just as easily shot up a synagogue. And this guy in Pittsburgh could have just as easily shot up a black church. The material on the internet is all there for them to become activated.
1: And Lonnie, it feels like when, if that material is all out there and it's swirling, it's warming and boiling, and then the politics, the politicians, is it that they they lack the ability or that they're just the wrong people to talk about these kinds of issues in the culture in the first place? I think they're
4: the wrong people but I also think they have to realize that they've been put into a position that requires them to accept additional responsibility and chief among them is the president. The president sits in a unique position. He is the only person with a national constituency and he's the only person with a megaphone that truly reaches all Americans. Now this is not to place obviously not to place blame for these events on the president but it is to say that, that politicians need to start taking this more seriously, that they are public officials whom people will look to as moral leaders as well. I know we often say we don't elect politicians to be moral leaders. Well, maybe we should take that a little more seriously. Maybe they should take that role a little more seriously.
12: But of course, we do elect politicians to be moral leaders. And in particular, we elect presidents to step up at times of great national trauma to bring us together. That is one of the things that presidents are in a unique position to do and that this president has declined to do, by and large. And I think it's no surprise that we've had three terrible incidents in a 72-hour period where hate is backed up by violence as we move toward a midterm election, where both sides... See the consequences of the election is kind of fundamental to the future of our country, and the heat that kind of superheated rhetoric, I think, started with pre- President Trump didn't create, didn't begin it, but he has certainly increased
7: it. You don't really notice the importance of the role the president plays, a president plays in creating a tone. Uh, a positive tone in America until you have the absence of a president who creates a positive tone. And yes, Donald Trump has been trying. He's been reading statements about anti-Semitism that seem appropriate. But as we see in his rallies, he quickly veers from those statements and goes right back to division. So uh, it it really is remarkable to me to see how, uh, how quickly he pivots away from the message he understands or someone has told him he should be delivering back to division.
6: And to make just a, a more direct connection, especially off of Susan's point, um, the shooter in Pittsburgh expressly said that the thing that he was angry about were the migrants uh, heading toward the American border. A situation that has been demagogued by the president, that has been um, hyped up uh, and demagogued by right-wing media, that is sort of been is being. Talked about in these like existential terms. This is going to destroy America if this if these people get here. Um, and while you know, of course, the president isn't responsible, et-, et cetera, et cetera. It's also the case that this guy was clearly imbibing that rhetoric. He, he clearly was that was clearly that was radicalizing him. And I think we should recognize the ways in which that kind of demagoguery mm. radicalizes people.
7: This started on Inauguration Day, American Carnage. It's the apocalyptic language that is deployed on policy issues that creates this it, feeling of hysteria and darkness.
4: I, I do think that you've seen this now on both sides in terms of the policy issues being radicalized. You see it when Democrats argue Republicans want to destroy your health or destroy your health care. You see it when Republicans use immigration mm-hmm. to get people all lathered up. And and, and there's a radicalization of issues, We're not talking about the, the policy solution anymore. We're talking about what the personal implications might be in, in ways that are apocalyptic or that suggest that the other side is somehow responsible for, for, you, for your personal demise. And I think that's the challenge that we're facing.
1: Well, and that's right. And, and separate and apart from the president, if a Democrat wants to sell the idea that Republicans don't really care about pre-existing conditions, they're not going to say, well, you know, their market-based approach to health care is inconsistent <laughs> with its promise. They're going to say they're heartless, and don't let them get in control because they don't care about you. That's, I mean, this is just the way the system of politics works.
12: Well, and of course, it leaves no middle ground. Right. How do you make a compromise between someone who wants to kill your elderly parents by taking away their health care and, and someone who cares more about immigrants than they care about American citizens? It makes it, it's, it's one of the factors that make it so difficult to have, to do anything afterwards. And, you know, you, you mentioned that the two senators you have had on have this remarkable uh, example of bipartisan by co hosting. A prayer group. You know, we I think that's great. I'm glad they're co-hosting a prayer group. But think of how small our politics are that they're not coming to a, a reasonable agreement on immigration that could help de- de-escalate that issue. Or or on some other big issue that we expect Congress to deal with.
1: also, Jamel, it feels like the primary steps, the beginning steps of reconciliation, require some introspection. But if you're a Democrat, and I bet Chris Coons' Twitter feed is full of anger at him for saying, you know, our own side has these issues that we, we shouldn't be shouting down Mitch McConnell, and Maxine Waters shouldn't be doing what she's doing, because the immediate response from a Democrat is, how dare you look at what the president's doing? If that cycle continues, nobody's getting anywhere.
6: I think that 's right uh, I, I I have to say I, i'm a, a little sympathetic to the like hypothetical responders to Chris goons because I think it 's important I think distinctions are really important i think there 's a qualitative difference and especially in a society that it has a history of racialized violence in a society that is riven by racial division, um, I think there's a qualitative difference between sort of getting angry and apocalyptic about policy issues and getting angry and apocalyptic about identity issues, about these immigrants are going to fundamentally change American identity resonates a, a specific way in a country whose history is saturated with racialized violence. Is saturated with the rhetoric of that sort that led to really awful atrocities. And so, although I would like, I'm a, I'm a calm person by disposition. I would like to see more calm political rhetoric. I think we have. To, it, it's important that we don't conflate those these two these two different kinds of incivility. One of them is unfortunate, makes compromise difficult. One of them is an existential issue for people, for living people in this society.
7: The, there is a common thread here, and you've written about this. Um, restraint. That democracies can only function if people don't say everything that's on their minds. And what we have now is people saying whatever comes to mind in order to achieve a short-term political gain.
1: Well, um, either picking up on that restraint point, because James Q. Wilson used to talk about right. this all the time in the old days, and so either is there a, a policy way to get restraint in the culture, that seems hard, or... With this question of domestic terrorism in America, is there anything, you know, Senator Langsford said, we're not going to listen into each other. Um, So is there a policy response to this escalation in domestic terrorism? Well, I think there's an institutional response and there's
4: a policy response. The institutional response suggests that the reason why we have the situation we have now is because the traditional balance between the executive and the legislative branches, for example, the fact that Congress doesn't really do its job anymore, I think that has something to do with it. Because in, in the traditional way to handle this would be you'd have a strong Congress that would check an overactive executive. That's sort of the way the founders wanted it. That's what you would have. From a policy perspective, uh, it seems to me that law enforcement needs to have the appropriate tools in order to monitor these kinds of things. That having been said, um, there's a very fine line between an overactive law enforcement function uh, and the need for us to be looking at things people are saying online, the kinds of rhetoric they're using, the kinds of dialogue they're using. Um, I I think law enforcement has those tools. I think it's a question of what the right balance is. And if Congress wants to conduct oversight, again, they could. But the question is... You know, do we need new policy to deal with this? I don't think so. I think what we just need is we need people to actually be doing their jobs, which law enforcement largely is.
12: You know, there's one thread between all these terrible incidents this week that have made us seem so ripped apart as a as a nation, and that is the availability of guns. And I don't think any of us think uh, that gun laws are going to go anywhere with this Congress. But, you know, if, if Americans really wanted a change in gun laws, if they thought it was wrong that this uh, deranged man in Pittsburgh had an assault rifle, they could elect different leaders. They could uh, make it a higher priority, people who, who uh, f- to feel that way. And I actually think that is a possible response. Uh, we'll see in the midterms in just nine days. I think it is possible, it's conceivable, that that could also be a response to this domestic terrorism.
1: Uh, Jamal, do you see a lot of uh, Democrats on whom Democrats are placing their hopes in these swing House districts running on gun control?
6: Only in the suburban districts, but in the places where Trump did really well with working class whites, um, there's not very much emphasis on gun control. I think if Democrats take uh, the House majority and if it's a substantial House majority, meaning that they won lots of seats in these traditionally Republican suburban districts and these Trump switching Democratic districts, you might end up seeing a kind of conflict between two sets of Democrats who
1: rely on very different constituencies. Let's talk about policy in the election, because clearly Donald Trump feels that the issue of immigration, some of these values issues, are going to work well for, for Republicans. Why aren't they running on the big tax cut they passed? <laughs> a. And then B, the Democratic response seems to be to talk about health care to be more policy oriented. What do you see? Do you see that split, and what do you make of it? No, I, I absolutely see that split. I think, I think this is going to be the health care versus judges election.
4: And judges is a shorthand, I think, for some of these more cultural elements uh, that motivate Republican voters. I think the reason why the two sides have gone to the issues they've gone to is because they're going to the issues they know will motivate their base at the end of the day and tax cuts and the economy are great but it's more of an overlay it's very hard to get someone to say hey go out there and vote because of the tax cuts I gave you, it may be the case that they could, they could say, look, if you don't vote for the Republican, those tax cuts will be gone. The negative message might work better. But fundamentally, I think both sides have settled on the issues they've settled on because they realize, hey, these are the issues that our side really will get worked up about. For Democrats, it obviously is health care. And for Republicans, it's some combination of judges, law enforcement, uh, and immigration, and I think we've seen all of those issues in play uh, in the last couple of days.
7: My question on that is whether that the events of the last week um, sort of obviate the Kavanaugh bump that the Republicans have gotten. The Kavanaugh bump was very effective for Donald Trump. He promised to get these judges in. He did, but now there's this feeling that things are coming unhinged. The wheels are coming off, and and people, including suburban voters who might be on the fence. Might look at Donald Trump and say you're you're abetting this, and this is a very nationalized election, as we heard. So that's the question.
4: Yeah, I think I think to a certain degree there is maybe some uh, some impact on it, but the Kavanaugh bump and the enthusiasm that was created by that whole process, I think, really that's the key narrative
6: going into the election because so many people have voted already.
10: I, mean, I think that matters.
6: I, oh, I, I was just going to say what's what's confounding about this upcoming election is that. Enthusiasm across the board is so high. Likely turnout is going to be so high for a midterm that at a certain point, it's just difficult to make predictions because <laughs> tiny changes, <laughs> tiny changes in enthusiasm and, and turnout um, among different uh, demographics get you radically different results. And so,
13: difficult
12: uh, and dangerous right. to make predictions. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 I take your point on policy, and it's certain that majority of the House ads by Democrats have been on health care. But I think this is the election of Trump. We did a poll this week that showed. Three out of four likely voters said President Trump had an impact on their decision of who to vote for for Congress. And a majority of them, 57% of likely voters, told us a lot of impact by President Trump. So this is an issue about health care and judges. But this is, first of all, I think, an issue about President Trump.
1: All right, we're going to have to end it there. Thanks to all of you. And we'll be back in a moment.
2: What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 World's Most Ethical Companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com.
1: The recent murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi by agents of the Saudi Arabian government has called into question the U.S. strategy of using the Saudi kingdom as a wedge against Iran. CBS News correspondent Elizabeth Palmer spoke earlier today in Tehran with Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif and asked about his government's view on the U.S.-Saudi alliance.
13: The choices that have been made in this region have been wrong, and there is nothing new about them.
12: What choices are you talking about? Choices
13: about supporting Saddam Hussein. Choices about supporting uh, al-Qaeda. Choices about supporting the Taliban. This is Saudi. You're talking Saudi supported uh, ISIS. Saudis supported them with almost a carte blanche from the United States.
12: I think, reading between your lines, you're saying that Saudi Arabia is a poor ally for the United States and Iran would be a better one.
13: No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the United States' choices in the Middle East are wrong. And these wrong choices lead to the uh, disaster in our region. We knew that the invasion of Iraq was a wrong choice, although Saddam Hussein was our enemy. We knew that the attack against Afghanistan was a wrong choice, although Taliban were our enemy. We know that the invasion and attack bombardment of Yemen are wrong choices. But the, the United States is continuously and persistently on the wrong side be it in Yemen, be it imprisoning a prime minister of another country, be it uh, the recent incident in... So you're basically saying the U.S. support of Saudi,
12: and in particular Mohammed bin Salman, has emboldened the Saudis to do things that you consider beyond the pale, like imprisoning Lebanon's prime minister, like uh, allegedly uh, ordering the murder of a journalist.
13: I think... The blanket support that the U.S. provides to Saudi Arabia and to Israel has enabled them to carry out atrocities that would not have happened had there not existed this blanket support, blind support.
1: Our Elizabeth Palmer taped earlier today in Tehran. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. As we leave you, we want to remember those who were killed at the Tree of Life synagogue yesterday. Today's guests were Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford, Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons, Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan, and New York Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter... Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music.
5: I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.
12: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you.